0: John chapter 10. Now, I don't often say what I'm about to say before I start a message, but I'll say it this morning. Um, This may be one of the most important messages I've preached in a long time. Now, obviously, as a pastor, I think every message I preach is important. But I think because of what's going on in our culture and because this is the passage of Scripture that is before us in the chapter of of John chapter 10, I believe that we have a timely message today from the Word of God. In the past few weeks, two events have happened where popular evangelical leaders have made statements that are outright confusing, disturbing, disturbing, and even dangerous back at the end of the summer Andy Stanley who is the pastor of one of the largest churches in America was at a Southern Baptist conference where he was asked what should the younger generation of pastors do in order to reach this new culture and his answer was we need to get the spotlight off the Bible and back onto the resurrection of Christ Now, at first blush, that statement is a little bit confusing. What does it mean to take the spotlight off the Bible? How do you know about the resurrection unless you read about it in the Bible? So that statement was kind of confusing. Let's take the spotlight off the Bible. Where are we supposed to put the spotlight back on? But then, that next Sunday, he preached a sermon in his church that got him into some hot water around the country. Listen to some of the words from his sermon. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. This is where our trouble begins. If the Bible isn't true, Christianity comes tumbling down. Consequently, Christians have felt compelled to defend the Bible because the only way to defend the Christian faith is to defend the Bible. It's next to impossible to defend the entire Bible. Christianity does not exist because of the Bible. Let's take the spotlight off the Bible. Now, a lot of you know what happened last week when a famous television star and Christian author, Jen Hatmaker, I don't even know who Jen Hatmaker was until a few weeks ago, basically came out and said that God does indeed bless gay marriages as holy before the Lord and that we as a church need to be open to a monogamous gay marriage because that's the wave of the future. LifeWay Christian Stores, our own Southern Baptist Publishing House, has pulled all of her books off of the shelf. So what do we do with these statements? From famous evangelical leaders that are saying things that, take the spotlight off the Bible, you can't trust the Bible, let's throw the Bible out, the baby out with the bathwater. What do we do when we see this happening in our lives? culture so let me just ask you a question do we have the right to redefine what god's word says and think that it may just evolve over time with something different than what god originally intended it to mean is the bible some type of outdated book does the bible promote bigotry and hatred is it presumptuous for the Bible to claim that Jesus is the only way and that it is God's inspired truth when you have the Quran and all these other sacred writings to choose from? In an age that is hostile to the claims of this Bible, how do we as faithful Christians hold fast to the truth of Scripture? Paul tells us in Galatians 1, 8-9, He says, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we've said before, now I say it again. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. That word accursed means let him go to hell. Let him be damned. Somebody comes and preaches a different gospel. Jude 3. Beloved, Although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. The faith, the truth. So, what does Jesus himself have to say about the Bible? Well, let's pick up in John chapter 10, and we've got to remember where we are because we took a break last week. This is the Feast of Dedication, Hanukkah. If you remember, Jesus had made this bold claim that he's got us in his grip, and he and the Father have got us in his solid grip, and we looked a few weeks ago about the doctrine of eternal security, that if you're truly saved, you can never lose your salvation. And Jesus makes that bold statement In John chapter 10, verse 30, where we'll pick up, what does Jesus say? I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. And Jesus answered them, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man make yourself God. Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the son of God. If I'm not doing the works of my father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, Even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. Let's just look at the story, how it unfolds, because there's a showdown. What's the claim that Jesus is making? I and the Father are one. Jesus is making this bold statement that he is equal with God, he's fully God, he's fully divine, he shares the the same Godhood as God, that that Jesus is God in the flesh, staring them in the face. That's what he's claiming. Now, what's their charge against him? Blasphemy. Blasphemy. Nobody dare claim to be equal with God. That is punishable by stoning. That's why they picked up stones to kill Jesus, because of blasphemy. If you go back to Leviticus chapter 24, verse 16, you find in the Old Testament law, Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him, the sojourner as well as the native. When he blasphemes the name, shall he be put to death. So they're mad at Jesus. How dare you claim to be one with God? Let's pick up stones to stone him. Now, how does Jesus answer their charge? Is it not written in your law? He quotes Psalm 82, which I find very, very interesting. He points to Psalm 82, an obscure psalm, a difficult psalm, to basically defend Jesus his deity. Why not choose something from Isaiah? Why not choose one of the more lofty passages of Scripture that we have from the Old Testament that would point directly to who Christ was? Why Psalm 82? Well, what does Psalm 82 say? Psalm 82, 6-7, that Jesus quotes, says this, I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Now, nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. What in the world does this mean that human beings are called gods? What does it mean? There's been a lot of debate over the years. Most scholars believe that the psalm is talking about judges or military leaders or human leaders who were in a position of authority, had the title of God and they were leading corruptly and they had a position of authority that nobody else in Israel had. This does not mean, hear me clearly, the little gods heresy that you sometimes hear in the word faith movement or even in the Mormon religion where somehow we are divine or or this verse is saying that we are somehow little gods because the very next verse says you're going to die like kings. Basically, it's referring to these earthly leaders who had the title of God in the sense that they were judges, they were leaders that were set apart to lead the nation, and they were acting corruptly. So what's Jesus' point? Why does he quote this passage of Scripture? What's he saying? He's saying to them, you guys are hung up on me saying that I'm God when yet the Bible that you read actually calls human beings God's. So get over it, because I am the Son of God right before your eyes. I'm the one that has been consecrated, verse 36 says. What does he say in verse 36? Do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you're blaspheming because I am the Son of God. Jesus says, listen, I'm laying down the gauntlet. I'm the Son of God. I've been consecrated of God. I've been set apart by God. I've been sent on a mission from God. I am God. And if that title, Son of God, or God's can be used in the Old Testament, why are you having a problem with me, who is God in the flesh, making the claim that I am God? Jesus is the fulfillment of the Feast of Dedication. This whole idea of coming to cleanse the temple. Jesus is the consecrated one. Come to do God's word. But notice what he says there in verse 35 if he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken. It's interesting. Jesus knew exactly which passage of scripture to quote in the exact moment in time that he needed to quote it. He's not fumbling around in his Bible wondering which passage of scripture to to use. He quotes it from memory. And Jesus doesn't have to prove to these men that Psalm 82 is authoritative. They know it's Scripture. They know it's authoritative. They know it's the Word of God. And what does Jesus say very clearly there in verse 35? The Scripture cannot be broken. That's probably one of the most powerful words that Jesus himself speaks about the Bible. The Scripture cannot be broken. Literally loosed or loosened. Now, what does it mean that Scripture cannot be broken? B.B. Warfield, who was a theologian back in the late 1900s, said this It is impossible for the Scripture to be annulled, its authority to be withstood or denied. What we have here is therefore the strongest possible assertion of the infallible authority of Scripture. What does it mean that Scripture can't be broken? No command in Scripture can be ignored or rejected. No record in Scripture can be falsified. No promise can fail to come true, and no statement can ever be in error. So here's the point for this morning. It's a very important point. It's something that you and I need to live by and breathe by, and as a church hold to, especially in this culture, here it is. It's the main point of this passage. As believers in Jesus, we must hold to the exact same view of the Bible that he did. If you say you're a Christ follower, then you need to have the same view of the Bible that Jesus has. So let's ask a question. What view of the Bible did Jesus half, he says here, the scripture cannot be broken, cannot be falsified, cannot be messed with, cannot be tampered with, cannot be altered, cannot be falsified. So how did Jesus view the Bible? I'm going to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew because we're going to spend just a little bit of time in the Gospel of Matthew because what I want to do this morning is to show you three examples of how Jesus viewed the Bible, and then I want us to look at the implications for how this applies to us today and how we view the Bible. So if we're going to have the same view of Jesus as the Bible, we need to understand what his view of the Bible is, and then what are the implications for us living this out today in this culture that is hostile to the Bible. Okay? So here's number one, Jesus believed... In the authority of the entirety of Scripture, even down to the most minute of details. Jesus believed in the authority of the entirety of Scripture, even down to the most minute of details. Let's look at Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 19. Matthew chapter 5, 17 through 19. This is part of the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus makes a statement about the Scriptures. Matthew five, seventeen. Through 19. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Verse 18, For truly I say to you, Until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. When Jesus is referring to the law and the prophets, he's referring to the totality of the Old Testament. The Bible, the Old Testament Bible. Obviously, the New Testament had not been written, so the Bible for Jesus and the Jews of his day was the Old Testament. And he says not one iota or dot. Now, in the old days, if you grew up in the King James, what is it? Jot or tittle. A jot or tittle. An iota or a dot. What does he mean by an iota or a dot? Well, iota is the smallest letter in the Greek alphabet, but he's probably referring to the Hebrew language where the smallest stroke was the yod and the vav. That's Hebrew, yod and vav. These were tiny little markings that would either be above the line or the smallest stroke of a little accent that would be just the smallest little stroke on one of the actual Hebrew characters. It would be like an I dotting your I's and crossing your T's. So Jesus is saying, even down to the smallest stroke of a pen, dotting the I, crossing the T's, it is authoritative. It matters. The most minute of details. Jesus has the highest possible view of the Scriptures, down to even the smallest stroke of a pen. And notice the permanence of what he says there in verse 18. Truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away. When are heaven and earth going to pass away? Answer, well, when God decides to end the world and create a new heaven and a new earth, the permanence of God's word down to the very smallest stroke of a pen, Jesus says it cannot be relaxed. Notice what he says there. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments, the word "a relaxed there is the same Greek word for the scripture cannot be broken. It's the same word. It cannot be broken, cannot be relaxed, cannot be loosened. So Jesus is saying the entirety of Scripture is permanent down to the very most minute of details. The jot, the tittle, the iota, the dot, the vav, the yod, the stroke of the pen. However small detail you want to get down to, Jesus says it's not just the words, it's not just the phrases, it's down to the very most minute of details, it's authoritative. That's Jesus' view of the Bible. Now let's look at the second thing that Jesus says. Turn to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 and following. Here's the second thing that Jesus believes about the Bible. Jesus believed the scriptures revealed actual facts of history. Actual facts of history. Anybody ever grow up hearing that, well, how can you believe in Noah's Ark? Or how can you believe that Jonah was swallowed by a fish? That's a fable. That's an allegory. That's just kind of an expressive way to say that God's powerful. But we know those things didn't really happen. Jonah wasn't really swallowed by a fish. It's an allegory. It's just a story that little... It's a bedtime story to help kids go to sleep at night. Don't know why you tell the Jonah story. He got belched up on dry land. (laughs) Hey, kid, do you want to hear about a kid getting swallowed by a fish and getting belched up on dry land? So Jonah, here we go, Matthew 12, 38 through 42. Listen to what Jesus says about Jonah. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given "...to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth." The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Now, obviously, Jesus is making a comparison to him, saying, I'm greater than Solomon, I'm greater than Jonah. But notice what Jesus says. There's a literal man named Jonah... And he got literally swallowed by a fish, and he was literally in the fish three days and three nights. Jesus does not say to the Pharisees, hey guys, we know this is just a, farib- a fable. It's a fairy tale from our, from our history. We know that it's impossible for a person to be swallowed by a fish and to spend three days in the fish. We know it's just a child story. Get over it. That's not what Jesus says. Jesus says, listen, Jonah's a literal man. It literally happened because I'm making comparison to me being in the tomb three days. If you allegorize Jonah, you're going to have to allegorize Jesus being in the tomb and rising again and he talks about the queen of the south that's the queen of Sheba we remember the queen of Sheba came and took a journey and literally visited with King Solomon and got wisdom from King Solomon so are you going to allegorize the queen of Sheba? are you going to allegorize Solomon? no, I could go on and on how Jesus believed that the actual events in the Old Testament were literal historical facts of history they weren't fables they weren't made up they weren't just these, these tales. they were literal historical facts of history that Jesus accepted as literal historical events. Number three, Jesus believed in the permanence of God's definition of morality as written in the scripture. This is important. Let's go to Matthew chapter 19, 4 and 5. Matthew 19, 4 and 5. He's talking to the Pharisees. They ask him a question about divorce. Here's how he answers it. Matthew 19, 4-5. He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. How does Jesus start answering the question when they ask him about marriage and divorce what does he say here's my opinion what does he say have you not read where is jesus a source of authority before he even answers the question he goes back to the scriptures and says it is written down and he quotes two passages of scripture to support his point have you not read that God created them male and female. That's from Genesis one twenty seven. So God created man in His own image, in the image of God He created them, male and female. He created them. We can't mess with how God created gender. And number two, He quotes from Genesis two twenty four. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and hold to father and mother, and hold to his hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Jesus holds to the authority of what the Scripture says about God's definition of marriage between one man and one woman for a lifetime. And you may say, well, Jesus never mentioned anything about gay marriage, about homosexuality, about all these other issues. Let me just remind you something about Jesus. He did not have to address those issues in his time because he was an Orthodox Jew. He was talking to Orthodox Jews, and in that culture, it was universally accepted that gay marriage and homosexual activity was sinful according to the Old Testament law. He didn't have to address it because it was universally recognized as sinful. Now Paul, when he goes to the Gentile culture, they didn't recognize that, so that's why Paul addresses that. So saying that Jesus never addressed the issue, saying it's an argument from silence, is actually not accurate because what Jesus says is that immorality comes from within the heart of a person. In Mark chapter 7, 21 through 23, Jesus says, For from within, out of the heart of a man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality... Theft, murder, adultery, covening, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within and they defile a person. Jesus uses the term sexual immorality, which is the word porneia. Get our word pornography from that. Porneia in that language means any type of sexual intercourse that's not between one man and one woman in a covenant marriage. So Jesus is against any type of sexual conduct that's not between one man, one woman, in a covenant marriage. And he appeals to the authority of Scripture as his definition. So Jesus holds to the permanence of God's design for sexual morality by appealing to what the Scripture says. So, if Jesus says the Scripture cannot be broken, If Jesus believes that the authority of Scripture is down to the very smallest of details, if Jesus believes that everything that happened in the Bible is historical fact, if Jesus holds to the permanence of what God's teachings are and His moral law about sexual ethics and things like that, then the question becomes, if we're going to follow Jesus and be followers of Jesus, we better have the same view of the Bible that Jesus did. And so let me suggest to you this morning five crucial truths about the Bible that we need to hold to. This is something that you need to embrace in this culture because the culture will not embrace this. A lot of churches in this town this morning will not embrace this. So we're in a minority in where we're going here this morning. But our statement of faith says this, the Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving faith, knowledge, and obedience. So here's truth number one that we've got to believe. We must believe the Bible is literally the breathed out word of God. We're going to camp out in 2 Timothy, so turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. And this is a very, very important passage. I, I want you to turn to your Bible so you can see this with your own eyes. So you can highlight it, you can underline it, whatever you need to do to get this scripture in your heart and in your mind because this is one of the most fundamental passages of scripture about what the Bible says about itself. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 15 through 17. Paul is talking to Timothy. He's a young pastor. Paul's reminding him how he was growing up in the Lord and how he learned the, the, the Bible from infancy. Let's pick up in verse 15. How from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All scripture is breathed out by God. And profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Paul mentions two things here. He calls them sacred writings in Scripture Gramma and Grathe, writings, the Scriptures. He's talking about the Old Testament scriptures here because the New Testament hadn't been completed, but by extension, we can apply this to the New Testament as well. Now, notice what Paul says. All scripture. Pas in the Greek language. It means every single scripture. What did Jesus say? Down to the smallest stroke of the pen. Every single word that we have in the Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, is what Paul calls "theanustas." Theanustas, God breathed, breathed out by God. Theos is the Greek word for God. Numa is the Greek word for breath or spirit. It's the only time this word shows up in the Bible. Theanustas, it means the very. God-breathed scriptures. Here's what it means. God so moved in the hearts and the minds of the scripture writers, he breathed out his very words to them so that what they wrote down in writing is the actual God-breathed scripture without error. It is the very words of God. It's the origin of God. It means that what we have here did not come from the product of men. This is God's actual word. It doesn't just contain God's word. It is God's word. It's his breathed out word. Every single word is breathed out by God. Now, some of the translations make it confusing. Some of your translations may say given by inspiration. comes from the Latin Vulgate. Inspire. But our, in our culture, the word inspired can be a little bit confusing because I could say LeBron James was really inspired to win the NBA championship this past summer. And you can be inspired by his inspiration. Or you could say, you know what? When Shakespeare sat down to write Romeo and Juliet, he got inspired. Maybe there was a pretty girl that was amused to him that inspired him to write this. Or your greatest singer, whatever favorite group or person that you like, they were inspired to write that piece of music. It's inspiring. It's not what it means. It doesn't mean the Bible's inspiring when you read it. It doesn't mean the scripture writer sat down and said, you know what, I I think I'm going to write something because I've I've got a cool thought. It wasn't like Paul was sitting in in jail and said, you know what, I've got some cool thoughts, let me write these down. No, it means that The final product, the written scripture, is the very breath of God. The breathed out word of God that has inherent power because it is God's word Himself. Some people say, you know, I want to hear the audible voice of God. I want to hear God speak. And I say, you know what? You can hear God speak all the time audibly. What? You want to hear God speak audibly? Just read your Bible out loud. (laughs) Read your Bible out loud. Every time you read your Bible, God is speaking. These are the very breath words of God to you in written form. Now think about that. God chose to have it written down. He could have had it through oral tradition. And you've played that game telephone, right? Where things get lost in translation. He's given us a written word. Record of his exact word. Now, the scriptures does not tell us how this happened. We do not have details on how the process happened to where God breathed out his very word into the scripture writers and they wrote it down. The only clue we have is from 1 Peter. 1 Peter gives some insight into this process. I mean, I'm sorry, 2 Peter. 2 Peter 1, 20-21. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So we don't know exactly what that looks like. All we know is that somehow, supernaturally, powerfully, God worked in the hearts and the minds of of those writers to write down exactly what God wanted to be written down. Now, God didn't bypass their personality. I don't think it was like, you know, a stenographer in a courtroom where they're sitting there and and God's like just telling them, I think that God moved through their personality and their backgrounds. We really don't know how, but what we do know is that the final product that we have, the all scripture, is the very breathed out word of God. So that's number one. We've got to believe this is the God-breathed very word of God. Second truth we must believe. We must believe that the entire Bible is absolutely true without any errors. If God breathed out His Word to human authors to give us a Scripture that is God-breathed, would He not make sure that what we have is free of error? That it's absolutely true? What does the Bible say about itself? Numbers twenty three nineteen. God is not man that he should lie or the son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said it and will he not do it? Has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? Is God going to lie to us? Is God going to give us any false information? No, the answer is no. Psalm twelve six: The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. Psalm 19, 7-9. The law of the Lord is perfect. These are all synonyms or similar words for, God, for God's word, the, the scripture. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous all together. Proverbs chapter 30, verse 5 Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in Him. And Jesus said in John 17, 17, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Jesus doesn't say your word is true. Now, there would be nothing wrong with saying your word is true. He says your word is truth. And the way it's constructed there in the original language is your word is truth with a capital T. It is the embodiment of all truth. It's absolute truth. So number one, we must believe it's the God-breathed word. Number two, we've got to believe it's it's, it's accurate and everything that it it, entails and that there are no errors and it's absolutely true. But here's number three, and this is where our culture has gone off the rails. We must believe that Scripture has a fixed historical meaning that transcends culture and does not change over time you may hear people say things like well we've got to evolve in our understanding of the bible that was okay for them back then but we've we've got some insight we've we've grown in our understanding that was archaic that was backwards that was barbaric. That, 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 was, that was for a time back 2,000, three, 3,000, years ago. But we're more enlightened. We're more involved. We, we've got a better understanding of things now. And so, so we're just going to change the meaning because we're more enlightened. Number one, that's the height of arrogance. Because basically what you're saying is that you know better than God. Let's talk about Jen Hatmaker for a moment. Her husband, Brandon, made a statement on Facebook where he supported his wife's conclusions. I went to his Facebook page, and I found it very fascinating what he said. Let me just read to you his words, his exact words. Quote, We both believe a same-sex marriage as a lifelong monogamous commitment can be holy before God. For more than a year, we studied every version of every verse in the Bible that appeared to discuss homosexuality. We studied the Greek. We studied the Hebrew. We read every commentary we could find related specifically to the related passages. As we would for any topic seeking truth, we did our best to look at each verse with fresh eyes. We applied all the rules to faithfully and ethically interpret Scripture. We considered the type of literature, the context in which it was written, what other Scriptures say about it, giving clues to God's intent, and viewed each through the lens of the gospel. The historical view is that Scripture is clear on homosexuality. What we found is that it's not as simple as traditionally has been taught. Bottom line, we don't believe a committed, lifelong, monogamous, same-sex marriage violates anything seen in Scripture about God's hopes for a marriage relationship. What I find interesting is he doesn't just throw out the Bible. What does he do? He searches the Bible. He gets his commentaries out. He searches the Greek. He searches the Hebrew. He wants to study this, and he spent a year studying the Scriptures, and what conclusion did he come to? A wrong conclusion. You see how slippery it is? They're not just throwing out the Bible Say, don't believe the Bible. That's not what they're saying. They're a little bit more sly. They're a little bit more slippery. They're a little bit more subtle. It's more like, here's the Bible... Here's what it said back then, but we know better now, so we're going to reinterpret it based upon our own cultural lens. And what we need to realize is there's a fixed meaning. There's a historical fixed meaning that does not not transcend culture and doesn't change. Truth number four we must believe that the Bible is the supreme and final authority on all matters of faith and practice, the final authority. It means that all the words in the Bible are God's words in such a way that to disobey and not believe any word of Scripture is to disobey and not believe God Himself. Whatever God says, we believe it. I'm afraid too many people live as an authority over the Bible as opposed to living under the authority of the Bible. This is the supreme and final authority. It's not our opinion. It's not our feeling. It's not what some pundit says. This is the final authority. And let me just say this. If your pastor from this pulpit says something that's in violation of this authority of this Bible, you have every right to correct me. You have every right to rebuke me. You have every right to come to me. I am not above reproach. We've got to make sure that we're under the authority of the scripture. And if anybody goes off the rails, we have a right to go address them. Listen to what Isaiah 66, 1 through 2 says. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me and what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made, so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Do we tremble in fear and honor under the authority of this word? Let's look at truth number five. We must believe that the Bible alone is sufficient for growth in godliness and in church life together. It's it's sufficient, meaning this is all we need. We don't need anything else. We don't need some ecumenical council. We don't need a pope. We don't need a Book of Mormon. We don't need any other source to tell us how to live and how to act this is sufficient let's go back to that second timothy passage you should have your bible still open there all scripture is breathed out by god and is profitable it's profitable that word means useful advantageous beneficial valuable what does it mean it's profitable to teach us to reproof to correct, to train in righteousness, meaning that everything that we need to know, everything that we need to have is found in the profitability of Scripture to train us and to teach us. It's the only sufficient source. We don't need another source. It's sufficient. It also says there that it makes the man of God complete. That means proficient, capable. And then there's another word there, equipped, Equipped is often used to talk about furnishing a room or setting a limb or mending a fishing net. It means that you are thoroughly furnished and equipped with everything you need. So everything that you and I need to live the Christian life, to know about salvation, to know about how to relate relate to each other as Christians, as a church, this is the, the, the only sufficient source. We don't need to go outside of this. It's sufficient. And may I add this? We can neither add nor subtract to this. What's the warning at the end of the book of Revelation? Revelation 22, 18-19. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. If anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. Now, specifically talking about Revelation, but I think it can extend to the entirety of the Bible. We must believe it's the God-breathed Word. We must believe that it's without errors. We must believe there's a fixed historical meaning. We must believe that it is authoritative, and we must believe it's sufficient. One of the church history professors at Southern Seminary where I graduated from, Greg Allison, made this statement about the mission of the church. Listen to what he says about the mission of the church. The church must proclaim clearly, urgently, persuasively the Word of God without confusion, without change, without compromise as its first order of business. That's our mission as a church. That should be your mission as a Christian. That you're going to live under the authority of this Word so that there's no confusion. There's no change, and there's no compromise. In a world of compromise, in a world of change, in a world of confusion, it is very, very important that this church and you who are part of this church make a commitment to say, regardless of what the culture says, We're going to live under the authority of this word, and we're going to believe the same way that Jesus believed about the Bible. And what did Jesus say about the Bible? The scripture cannot be broken. I pray that's your view, and not just your view, but it influences how you live your entire life. Because let me just give you a, a surgeon's general warning about our future as a nation. It's not gonna get easier, What I'm saying this morning in five years may be considered hate speech. There will be compromise after compromise, I guarantee. It's not going to be the next. We're just waiting for the next popular evangelical to come out and do something crazy. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. And as long as I'm your pastor, this is our authority. And I pray that you are on board with this. I know you're on board with this. I just hope that when culture comes crashing at our door, we're still on board with this. It's easy to say it now, but when those hard days come, I need you to hang with me. I really need you to hang with me. Because I'm going to be on the front lines of what it means to hold fast to the truth. And if my church family can't back me, that's fine. I'll go at it alone, but I would sure love you to have my back. So, are we in this together? Can I have your commitment that we're in this together? We've got to be for the glory of God and for the good of His people. Yes, Frank, say something. Agree with me. (laughs) I'm always, I'm always, I'm always thankful, Frank. Sometimes you stood up and said some things, and but, um, yeah. (laughs) Amen. Let's let's bow our heads and go before the Lord, and let's make a commitment as a church family especially as we take the Lord's Supper here in just a few moments, we're celebrating the body and blood of our Lord. Let's just make a commitment that we're going to be a church that holds fast to the scriptures. Spend some time in prayer, just making that commitment before the Lord. You have given us your word, which is amazing, God, that you would even speak to us and speak in a way that's so clear and that we have it written down and Lord, that we've had people that have translated it into our own language so we can understand. And Lord, we are so privileged. We have so many different types of Bibles. We have this study Bible, that study Bible. or there are some people around the world that don't even have the Bible in their own language yet. So Lord, there's no excuse for us to be flippant about your word. Father, give us courage. Give us fortitude, give us conviction that no matter what the culture says, even if it comes from mouths of people that are Christian leaders, that our authority comes from the written Word of God without compromise, without change, and without confusion. Lord, help us to be those people Lord, we're going to need each other. So Lord, help us to encourage one another in the word. Help us to speak words of encouragement to each other each day in the word. Let us be an encouraging church. Let us encourage one another. It's going to get hard, Lord, we know. We're going to need each other. Father, we're going to need each other as a church family like we've never needed each other before. So help us right now to be prepared for that. For your glory and for your grace. We ask this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.